You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about inequities in chlamydia screening. 2019 marked the sixth consecutive year of rising rates of sexually transmitted infections in the United States. Chlamydia trachomatis, the most commonly reported bacterial disease in this country, now has the highest prevalence ever recorded with 1.8 million cases in 2019, and nearly half of infections occurred in youth ages 15 to 24. Joining me to help us learn more about this topic are two adolescent medicine physicians from CHOP, Drs. Kanisha Campbell and Sarah Wood. Dr. Kanisha Campbell is an adolescent medicine specialist and the director of adolescent medicine outpatient clinical services at CHOP. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lockwood, for having me. And Dr. Sarah Wood is a faculty member at Policy Lab and an attending physician in the Craig Dulcimer Division of Adolescent Medicine, also at CHOP. So welcome, Dr. Wood. Thank you, Dr. Lockwood. Thanks for having both of us today. Well, I'm so happy that you both could be here. But before we get started about talking about inequities, can you both remind us what we should be doing in terms of screening for chlamydia? What are the actual screening guidelines? I can get us started on that. So the CDC, the United States Preventative Services Task Force, and the Academy of Pediatrics recommends annual screening for sexually active cisgender females from 15 to 25 years old. So the screening guidelines are really based on anatomic side and whether you're male, female. So there are different guidelines for different folks, but in general, those are the primary guidelines. I can also tell you a little bit about the guidelines for men. So for young men who have sex with women, there's really not enough evidence for us to really say you have to screen them every year. So for that population, it's really based on risk if they live in high risk settings, such as adolescent clinics, STI clinics, or correctional facilities. And for men having sex with men, the recommendation is that they're screened at least annually at sites of contact. So urethra, rectum, et cetera, regardless of condom use. Great. Thank you for making those distinctions. So we're going to talk mostly about biologic women here, but we are also acknowledging that there are different screening guidelines in different risk groups. So tell me about why screening is so important in general. Why is this even such a hot topic for us? So asymptomatic infection is very common in both men and women. The reason we screen is because you won't know you have an STI if you're going to wait for symptoms. Many, many people don't have symptoms. The other important things are that if you screen people asymptomatically, then they get actually tested and they get treated much sooner, and that can reduce complications that are related to sexually transmitted infections in biologic women, such as pelvic inflammatory disease, ectopic pregnancies, infertility, pelvic pain, and also it will increase their susceptibility to HIV and other STIs if they're not treated. So early treatment also helps with that. 
That's great. And we're all about preventative medicine and primary care. So screening is very important to us. Now, you're both co-authors on a study published in 2022 in the American Journal of Public Health on inequities in chlamydia screening in primary care. And we're going to talk about that study. But first, I'm curious about what led you to explore this topic in the first place. Why did you think that you should look for inequities in chlamydia screening? It all originated with Dr. Campbell in the sense that back in 2015, Dr. Campbell and two of the adolescent medicine fellows at our hospital started a project just at one clinic, one of our West Philadelphia Title X family planning and primary care pediatric clinics to improve screening rates for chlamydia. And actually through doing a program where the workflow was changed a bit to universally grab a urine specimen on every teen who came into clinic, they were able to improve the chlamydia screening rates at that clinic. And then several years later, we spread the intervention to another West Philly clinic, worked well. And then the question became, can we spread this across our entire network? And so we're talking about 31 clinics that span three states with, you know, very diverse socioeconomic status, urban, rural, suburban divide, and pediatricians who have variable sort of experience with adolescent medicine. So the first step of that was actually just getting the baseline data data at all the different clinics to see who was screening and what rates they were screening at. And it was pretty dramatic right away to see that even within a single health system, there was quite a bit of variability about who was doing what and at which clinic. So that was the first piece in looking at variability. And then, you know, the second question about was, could there be any biases in the decision making at clinics that were screening about who gets screened? And so, for instance, we know at a Title X funded federal family planning clinic with pediatricians who have a lot of comfort with adolescent medicine, we're probably going to see high levels of screening. But that same high level of screening may be much more challenging in a clinic that, for instance, has a highly privately insured population where explanation of benefits could get sent to the house and compromise confidentiality. But also we know that when we're in situations where we'll say doing the right thing, in this case, chlamydia screening is hard, implicit bias can start to play even a greater role about who and which patients receive an evidence-based practice like chlamydia screening. That's great. And it sounds like you started with the idea of this almost like a QI project or just sort of a local practice change. And then you expanded this to, as you mentioned, our very large primary care network that involves a lot of different practice models. So walk us through a little bit about what you did in this study, how you turned this just from an idea at one clinic into looking systematically at many different populations. Great question. And what we really did was, you're absolutely right, this started as a small QI project that grew into sort of a massive um, quality improvement, implementation, science, clinical effectiveness research hybrid. Mm -hmm. So through our QI work at CHOP, we use a platform that allows us to see run charts of data for chlamydia screening. And behind those sort of run charts, which let us know how well we're doing with screening, we have all of our patient data that kind of lives in a database in the background. So we ended up using these background data to accrue data on every adolescent female ages 15 to 19 who was seen for a preventative well visit from 2015 through 2019 at our network. And our main outcome measure was looking at, did they get screened for chlamydia at 
the day of the well visit or in the 364 days prior. That's what we measured as a preventative visit year. Mm -hmm. So we first just looked at our variability question, which was at the level of the individual clinics, what proportion of adolescent females were screened? But then we wanted to look at how screening rates differed based on patient characteristics, including race, ethnicity, age, whether they had previously had chlamydia, and also what their insurance was, and also on clinic factors, including where the clinic was, urban or suburban, whether it had supplemental family planning funding, the size of the clinic, and sort of the case mix of the patients at a given clinic with respect to their insurance and how many of the sort of pediatric clinic population were teens. And when we looked at this first question, we found that when we kind of accounted for all those factors, that Black adolescent females were 67% more likely than white adolescent females at the same clinic with the same demographic factors to get screened for chlamydia. The second piece of what we wanted to do was to understand if implicit bias played a role in this, because you could sort of imagine if we have certain clinics where based on having had QI there before or there being more adolescent providers, we sort of have clinics where the high-level screening providers are clustered. And if those clinics also happen to be in areas where the probability of the patients at that clinic being Black versus white is higher, you might see this effect of just having a higher rate of Black patients getting screened because they're being seen by clinicians who are more comfortable with screening. So to answer that question, we actually went down to the level of every individual clinician in the practice and looked at whether they individually were more likely to screen their Black versus their white patients, accounting for those other characteristics like the factors about the clinic and the patient. And when we looked at that model, we still found that there was this racial inequity in screening where providers were 88% more likely to screen their own patients who are identified as Black versus identified as white. So the takeaway that we found was there was a lot of variability in screening practices that at the surface level, there was this inequity where Black teenage females were more likely than white teenage females to be screened. But then even at the level of the individual provider, there was this evidence of unconscious or implicit bias that could be driving who gets screened. So fascinating. So you've walked us through a lot of the different patient and clinic factors that might contribute to some of these inequities. And then the implicit bias that we as providers may have. Are there other provider level factors that contribute to disparities in how we might be screening? You mentioned things like education and training that we might have had. How can we as individuals in primary care who are listening to this think about addressing some of those provider-level factors to improve our work in this area? Yeah, I think when you talk about provider-level factors, like you mentioned, Dr. Lockwood, bias, discrimination, racism are all very important when we talk about provider-level factors. And as providers, we are able to make changes. The first kind of basic level, we have to be aware that we have biases and understand what these biases are. We need to seek out trainings to really learn about where these biases come from and understand how systemic racism has impacted healthcare and inequitable outcomes in healthcare that are very evident. On the patient level, I just think we should talk to our patients, be open, be culturally 
informed and culturally sensitive when we're dealing with our patients and their families. We should be personable, try to learn about their lives a little bit, just really interact more with our patients so we can take away some of those biases that stem from various stereotypes that we may or may not have. I think the other important piece that is mentioned in the paper as well is to be sure that as providers, we are standardizing our approach to our patients. Everyone should really receive the same for equitable care. We should be following all guidelines, especially related to you know screening for sexually transmitted infections with all of our patients, regardless of what we feel their risk is, unless that's actually related to the guideline. So I think just standardizing our approach to patients as well is going to be very helpful. On the other hand, when we talk about lack of knowledge and the importance of education, again, we need to educate ourselves. At CHOP, we obviously have a lot of avenues through the Office of Diversity and Inclusion to really educate ourselves on many, many topics related to biases and equity in healthcare. We need to educate ourselves on the guidelines and make sure we stay up to date. We have lots of CME. We have lots of conferences that we can go to to ensure that we're up to date. And we can also make sure that we have the resources in our back pocket that we need in the moment to take care of our patients. So for anything related to sexually transmitted infections, the Centers for Disease Control is really your best resource. And so it's really important to know that you can just go there and look things up if you might forget in the moment, just to make sure you're taking kind of the best care of your patient and also offering them the most up-to-date guidelines. That's great. And I think that point about seeking out the education to meet your own educational gaps and identifying where you might need to learn more and do more is so important. And that's the individual level, but how can we also address these inequities as a health system or for those people who are listening maybe out in their own office as a primary care office to be better about universal screening and following guidelines as a system? I think that's a really key point because the all of those individual provider level pieces that Dr. Campbell mentioned are critical. But we also know at our hearts, we're all pediatricians because we want to do the right thing for our patients. None of us mm -hmm. went into this career for the glamour or the money. And so I do think it's important to think about how can the health systems and how can office practices make it easier for pediatricians to really meet that goal of doing the right thing for their patients and keeping their patients healthy and safe. So Dr. Campbell talked about making sure that guidelines are applied universally, and that's a critical point. I think one change that we're going to see coming down the pipeline in the future is potentially making universal STI screening even more universal. So right now, as Dr. Campbell mentioned, the guidelines really focus on screening for individuals who are sexually active. But one of the key problems with that is that implicit bias can really drive which teens you even ask about sexual activity. So it's not just putting in the order for the chlamydia test where the biases come into play. Play. It's that upstream part of being able to even do the screening of if that teenager is having sex. And we know that often young Black women are adultified, are seen as older than their age, or have assumptions made about being overly sexualized or more likely to be sexually active than their white peers, even though that does not bear out in the data. So if we look at youth risk behavioral surveillance survey data from the CDC, we see that sexual activity rates between Black and white high school students are essentially pretty equal. I think one piece 
is going even beyond the health system, thinking about our guideline-making bodies. And as we get more and more data to show that routine chlamydia screening, when it's offered opt-out, meaning that it's offered to all teens without even doing that sexual activity screening, is cost-effective and can improve health outcomes, I do think we're going to start moving in that direction. And that is going to have a really positive downstream consequence in reducing bias. But in situations when we are screening based on sexual activity, I think there are ways to make that process both less biased and more effective. So an example of that at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is a group of pediatricians and researchers and informaticians have formed the Possibilities Project, which is basically a collaboration to innovate and transform primary care. And through that, have developed a tool called the Adolescent Health Questionnaire, which is a tablet-based electronic screener that when teens come in for their well visit, they fill out themselves on a tablet. And that collects basic health information directly from the teen and asks about health vulnerabilities like sex or smoking or substance use, along as collecting strengths and helping the teen identify what's important for them to discuss in the context of that visit. So that's one way that you kind of take the bias out. The provider isn't making the decision about who to screen and then not making a bias decision because every teen universally is going to fill out that screener. And the next step in that work for us is really figuring out how to use that screener to develop prompts or nudges in our electronic health record to kind of move the pediatrician closer to putting that order in to sort of making it easier to get over those barriers to actually ordering the test. Right. So we talked about screening, the importance of screening, the bias involved in screening and how to standardize this. So now that we're all going to be better about screening our patients and look for our own biases and improve our systems, remind us what we actually do when we get a positive screen. So it's important that whenever we are screening an adolescent for a sexually transmitted infection, we talk to them about confidentiality. Uh, We want to ensure that if the results will be confidential, we have a means to communicate with that adolescent once the result returns. So, of course, we have two family planning clinics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, so we are lucky to have those, but I know that's not the case everywhere. So it's really, really important to make sure you have a way to contact the adolescent. Now, once you have the way to contact the adolescent, the important thing is to know what the treatment recommendations are when someone comes back with a positive chlamydia screen. So the Centers for Disease Control recently updated their guidelines in 2021, and so the treatment has changed. So the primary recommended treatment uh, for chlamydia is doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days. Now, there are many reasons for this change. One of the reasons was that azithromycin, which was the previous primary recommendation, was leading to more treatment failure among men. The treatment levels for azithromycin also were not as effective for rectal infections. In addition, there were issues with resistance and just overall the microbiome. So it was decided to not make azithromycin the primary treatment. It is still an alternative regimen, however, So one gram orally in a single dose can be given. There are several circumstances where you can give azithromycin. So one is if the infection is not rectal, if the recipient is a female or a cisgender female, 
And also if you have adherence concerns, so you're going from taking two pills at once to taking two pills for seven days. And so, of course, if you don't think that the adolescent is going to be able to be adhering to that regimen, you can offer them the azithromycin. We just recommend that if you do that, that you see them back to ensure that their infection really was treated appropriately. Great. Thank you. Because I know those guidelines are new for many of us. So it's important that we hear that refresher that guidelines have changed. And so doxycycline twice a day for seven days is now preferred. And we can use azithro as an alternative if needed. Now, I feel pretty comfortable managing and screening and treating chlamydia in primary care. But when might it be a good idea to refer to adolescent medicine? Yeah, I think there's some cases in which phoning a friend is a good idea. (laughs) And I think when you find someone who has chronic pelvic pain after treatment, that would be one thought of when it's time to refer. We know that chlamydia often travels with friends, and there's more and more data emerging about the role potentially from mycoplasma genitalia as a secondary or co-infection in cases of cervicitis and in PID. So if you have a young person, you treat their chlamydia infection, they remain symptomatic, then referring is a great option because we can potentially send additional testing and think about whether we need another course of antibiotics. So there's more and more data that are really supporting potentially using moxifloxacin in a short course in people who either have proven mycoplasma genitalium or if you're in a lower resource setting where you can't get that testing just for those patients with persistent symptoms. The other population in which I think adolescent medicine referral is appropriate but doesn't always need to happen is when you're considering pre-exposure prophylaxis or HIV PrEP. And I say it doesn't need to happen because I think we have fabulous champions in primary care who are really comfortable prescribing PrEP. And we love it when we have our colleagues managing PrEP in primary care. But we also know it's something that pediatricians don't do every day. And if there's ever a situation where someone does need additional support or even, you know, to prescribe PrEP in primary care, but with some talking through support from an adolescent medicine colleague, I know we're always happy to get that call. And just a reminder that for teens with STIs and really now with the new CDC PrEP guidelines for any sexually active adolescent, we should be making them aware of PrEP as an additional option for HIV prevention. That's great. Well, you two are two of my favorite friends to phone. So I appreciate you teaching us more today about chlamydia and inequities and how to address those in our primary care practices. Just so everyone knows, your paper titled Inequities in Chlamydia Trachomatis Screening Between Black and White Adolescents in a Large Pediatric Primary Care Network 2015 to 2019 was published in the American Journal of Public Health in 2022. And so folks can read that for more details about everything we discussed today. And as you both mentioned, you know, it's so important that we identify our own biases, seek out education, and start to systematize and standardize our screening in this area. So we appreciate today you starting that step with us in providing this education. So thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Dr. Lockwood. Thank you so much, Dr. Lockwood. I enjoyed my time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes 
or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.